When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take on your etiquette questions on doodling at work, the annual wearing white to weddings question, how to greet clients in groups, and how do you know when a dinner party is done? All that plus your feedback, including a follow-up from Jimmy on the coughing storm at work, your etiquette salute for the week, and a postscript segment on golf etiquette. Coming Coming up. up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. And I've got allergies. I swear this isn't a different host. Your voice is maybe an octave lower? (laughs) I have no idea, but I definitely know it's affected. So I apologize that I sound a little... A little bit different coming to you this morning. Although I'm going to take the that, the good side of this and say yeah. this means spring has sprung. Spring has totally sprung. Vermont, we had this gorgeous 70-degree day yesterday. I, of all days to, like, randomly take off, I went to see Jackson Brown in Albany on Sunday night, and it was a fantastic show, so wonderful. The people at the Palace Theater were amazing. I thought it was just such a great venue, such a fun time. But drove back, didn't stay in Albany for the night, made it home at like 2 a.m. and was very grateful to have already pre-taken Monday off and then discover it was a 70 degree, like beautiful first real summery spring day. (laughs) I know that drive from Albany to Burlington (laughs) quite well. And it's awesome. You go through the farmland, you cross the lake, you have these views out across the lake into upstate New York. It's beautiful. 22A. I mean, it's it's a really gorgeous drive, so it's worth it. (laughs) the 22A route. That's my favorite that's, also. I did. Yeah, that's the one I'm used to from when we would go visit my grandmother in New Jersey. So, yeah, it was it was always really just it, it felt like home. It's one of those roads that just it feels super familiar even though it's kind of a long trek. But a great show after a great weekend. I hosted a little fajita fiesta. That's what it was. I was trying to remember what we had called it. It was a fajita fiesta. My girlfriends came over and we did fajita night and kind of everyone just Hung out, had a good time, laughing, dancing. I mean, it was a blast. Dusted off your hosting skills and I did. I don't, took them out for a spin. I did. I don't get to host very often because I have cats and a bunch of my girlfriends are allergic to cats. So one of my other girlfriends suggested that we co-host together. and it, So it was really nice to get to play that part even though it wasn't at my own home. Yeah. I love the host guest dance. I know. Now, listen, w- w- you were up to something this weekend. I saw you on Thursday last, and you had to leave Friday to head out to Kansas State, right? I did. and had a, a great time yeah. at Kansas State. And just talking about drives with you just mm-hmm. now, I'm 
wanting to reflect on my drive from Kansas City, Missouri out to Manhattan, Kansas. They call it the Little Apple. And it's out in sort of central Kansas, out towards the western edge of the state, which means I get to drive across the central plains. Talk about a beautiful part of this country. We're always talking about the mountains of Vermont, and this is such different landscape, and it's absolutely gorgeous. What did you love the most about this gorgeous landscape you were driving through? Um, This particular trip, I was noticing a certain ranch that's about three quarters of the way out to Manhattan. Okay. And it sits up on a hill and it's this beautiful old stone ranch house. And you can just see the views, the territory that it surveys. And it's absolutely majestic. It's stunning. It's grand. The sunsets. Oh, I bet. Are spectacular. And that was probably my favorite part. The drive back out on Saturday, I got a spectacular sunset on one side and moonrise on the other. And yeah, talk about a nice trip. Magic in the heartland. Indeed. Nice. Oh, well, it is wonderful to be back, both back in office with you this week and have you back in Vermont now. And um, I am sure our listeners would probably love it if we got to some questions. Let's do it. The heart of Awesome Etiquette is answering your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. We love to hear your voice. Or you can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so that we know you want it on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question is appropriately titled Doodlebug. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. Love the show and your insightful answers. I have a question for you today about the etiquette of doodling in a professional context. For as long as I can remember, I have used doodling as a concentration tool to keep focused and relaxed at times where I receive lots of information. 
Throughout public school and post-secondary, I would draw small images in my notebooks during lectures and found this very helpful in staying alert. My employer is a government agency that is progressive, but also large and slow-moving at times. In my role, I collaborate with both internal and external clients and am the youngest person on my team by around a decade. On several recent occasions, I have felt self-conscious about doodling after seeing responses from other staff. No one has made a comment, but I've seen several raised eyebrows from people who notice drawings in the corners of my memo book. I pride myself on presenting well and being an active listener. I take notes, nod, and vocalize agreement, and address speakers directly with questions. I try not to be obvious when I'm doodling, but... Don't make a point to hide this behavior either. I'm concerned that my age and relative newness with the department is leading to the perception that I'm drawing out of disinterest or lack of respect rather than for passive stimulation. Is doodling an acceptable behavior in a professional workplace? Is this something I should speak with my manager about for guidance, or should I wait to see if anyone actually expresses a concern? Your advice is much appreciated, Alistair. Alistair, we often like to start our answers with some general reflections or some (laughs) thoughts about the question. And your question brings up so many thoughts. It really is a a phenomenal question. I love the self-awareness that you're showing here. I love the awareness that you're showing of etiquette generally as a tricky territory. And I want to start off with the question that you finished with where you ask, is this something that you should bring up or should you wait for someone to express the concern? Because this is one of the things that makes a, an etiquette situation so difficult is that oftentimes it's an infraction or an offense that, that is so minor that although it's negatively impacting people, someone won't necessarily say something to you about it. If, right. If it were more egregious, it would come up. It would be obvious. You would <laughs> see those reproachful, stern looks. Someone would make a comment and th- that, that territory might start to emerge. But it might not. And your willingness to be self-reflective here, your willingness to consider your own behavior and the way it might be perceived by others really is excellent and is the heart of good etiquette. And it's reminding me of something else that Lizzie and I often say, which is that etiquette is most useful when used as a tool for self-assessment and self-improvement. And in that spirit, I want to say that you have inspired me to think a little bit because this is some behavior that I participate in myself. I'm well, definitely a, a, a meeting doodler yeah, at times. I was going to say, our whole family doodle. Like, we come from a family of doodle. My father, my uncle Billy, actually, if you see the board meetings, the, 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 the annual the, meeting notes. The annual meeting notes have these, like, gorgeous Italian trellis gardens and, like, bicycles and things all over them. It's really quite amazing. But at the same time, it can look like a distraction to others. So, again, you're back to this awareness. But, you know, what do you do in that moment when this is something our our listener uses for passive stimulation to help mm-hmm. them? I mean, this is like almost an educational tool in a lot of ways, a tool in their tool belt. But... The perception could be, you know, that you're not paying attention. That you're distracted, that your mind is elsewhere, that you're not focused on what's going on. And particularly as um, a new employee or someone who's new to this team, I think you're really wise to be thinking about this. And definitely I want to encourage you to, particularly when the meeting is small and when someone else is speaking and when they're really speaking to you, that you give them your undivided and full attention, that you look at them, that you show them that you're engaged with your body language, your posture, with those 
nonverbal cues, those nods, the the leaning forward, the not doodling, not yawning, not giving active cues that you're not listening to them. And maybe you start to give yourself a little bit more latitude when it's a bigger meeting, when it's a larger presentation, when lots of people have pens and pencils in hand and are taking notes. Lecture style. So the, the first place that, yeah, you really want to stay aware is the activity and the action and how distracting that could be to the person who's talking as well as to the people around you. I also like the way you're thinking about the, 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 the materials afterwards being revealing about what you've done. Lizzie mentions our annual meeting notes having these gorgeous <laughs> drawings on them. And I will also take a little side here and say that Lizzie's father, Peter, is an incredible artist as well. Very creative doodler. Very creative. But that is also evidence of your attention maybe being elsewhere or of that activity during the meeting in the same way uh, a timestamp on a social media post can be revealing that you weren't working during work hours. The the doodle on the work notes can be revealing of that also. So it's definitely something to be considering when you're talking about work product that's going to be shared with other people if you're concerned about the perception that it's going to create. And this is what's so frustrating, I think, probably for our listener. I'm going to take the sympathetic moment here and just say, like, it's so frustrating when you know you're paying attention and that this doodling is something that helps you pay attention. And yet at the same time, clearly our our listener is aware that it's creating this negative perception. And I just want to go back and say that we totally understand that you are paying attention and you're doing all the good things. The problem is, is that the doodling is such a known indicator of not paying attention, of be of being distracted by something else, allowing yourself to be distracted by something else, that that's what you're up against here. We understand that this is a tool for you and it's a tool for many people. But what we are talking about here is that perception Dan keeps bringing up. Absolutely. And as far as talking with your manager, I do think it's a good idea. I wouldn't necessarily take the approach of asking permission to doodle during meetings, <laughs> but you definitely could bring it up as something that you do, something that you find is helpful to you in your process of staying present, staying engaged, giving your hand something to do while you are listening. You might mention that you would be sure not to do this talking to an important client or when a supervisor or boss is giving their big annual presentation to your group, but that if you're doing it in team meetings that you hope that they don't think that you're not paying attention and that it is, or if they notice your notes afterwards, have some doodles on them, that they aren't indications that you weren't listening or engaged during the meeting. I am sure that over time you are going to develop good relationships in this workplace. I can tell just by the way you're approaching your work and the way you're approaching building good work relationships and that those relationships are going to help create the space for you to do things like doodle during a meeting, which could give offense but doesn't necessarily have to as people get to know you a little better. Alistair, good luck at this new job. We wish you the best. Our next question is titled WWWGD. What would wedding guests do? This is a short one. <laughs> is it appropriate to wear white to a bridal shower? A wedding? I figured that this is the perfect time to be talking about this as we're starting, you know, in the south where it's warmer, you're really starting to see those spring weddings pop up and a lot of us are going to be wedding guests. So our annual answer of can you wear white to wedding functions um, is upon us. And white is it's such a popular warm weather color. I mean, it looks just about good on everybody. And it's such a tempting choice as a wedding guest. You know, I've got I, I swear I have my own I have my own dress collection 
and I have my own separate white summer dress collection just because I love them so much. Different creams and and tones of white. It's amazing what a white dress can do in the summer. But when it comes to someone's wedding and white is the traditional wedding color that identifies the bride, that's where we start to have issues. Showers. Showers are definitely a place to respect bridal traditions, but they are not the same as a wedding. I think that it would probably be perfectly appropriate to show up to a wedding shower in a little white sundress of some sort. I would encourage someone to just double check maybe with a host or with the bride to see if she had been planning on wearing white. Some brides really like to take the bride theme into every single event. They'll wear a white dress to their uh, engagement party. They'll wear a white dress to the showers. They'll wear a white dress to the bachelorette party. I mean, they'll wear a white dress to pretty much every single event. And if you know that your friend or family member is like that, I might avoid the white dress. But for the most part, as long as you're not attending the wedding, you're in good territory. What are your thoughts about dressing up that white dress with a colorful scarf or hat, sash? Absolutely. (laughs) Why, thank you, Dan, for the accessories (laughs) question. (laughs) Um, I think that it's definitely an option. It can help break up that white a little bit. But, um, you know, when it's really hot out, not many people want to bring scarves and hats and sashes around. Um, Not many people actually wear sashes, actually. Let me correct myself on that. Um, That doesn't happen too often. Although the bride sometimes gets a bride sash that she wears, but that's an identifier. But I do think that when it comes to that wedding, uh, wedding day especially, if you know that the bride is going to be wearing white, that she's not a bride who's chosen to wear a red dress or a pink dress or a black dress, just something really different, um, that you really want to avoid a white dress, especially a white dress, I think, that... Obviously, if you're going to a a fancy wedding, formal wedding, and you've got floor-length white dress, you're really competing with the bride. And that's just not considered appropriate in in American culture. But if you're going to a wedding where you've got length options, a lot of people will take that option of wearing a short white dress thinking that that's okay. And my biggest question is, do you, is that really the only dress option that you have? That was the only thing you felt comfortable wearing today was a short white dress to someone else's wedding? Come on. Be real with yourself. I bet you have a better option in your closet. White dresses with patterns on them? Totally okay. That's much less bridal. It's not going to come across as looking like it potentially is a a wedding dress, you're not going to be looking like you're trying to steal attention from the bride. Um, and that is the perception. I-, I will tell you, if you wear a white dress that's, you know, even if it doesn't look like a bridal gown, um, you wear a white dress to a wedding, you're going to get some dirty looks. Like, you're going to get some glances, some questionable, hmm, so what made you choose that today? Um, it's a- I've seen it happen. You know, you're up at the bar and you see Aunt May questioning Cousin Carol, you know what I mean? And you're like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Final curveball question for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give it to me. What about guys? My impression is that it would be okay for a guy to wear a white linen jacket because it's not a competition with the bride in the same way. White linen jacket would be fine, but I always caution men to just double check, uh, find out, you know, what's the bridal party wearing? What's the groom or his guys wearing? It's entirely possible that you show up in the same color sets that the groomsmen are wearing and then you look like you're a part of the bridal party. Less of an issue for men, just less of a thing. Um, I think a lot of dudes don't really worry about the, oh, am I wearing the same thing? 
wedding as the groom because so many of the, you know, I mean, you weren't worried about any of the guys wearing tuxes at your wedding, right? Well, and white ties and white jackets are so just, formal yeah, that you're less likely to encounter that. It's it's less of an issue. But it, with, with the gals, it really can be an issue. And so it's something to consider and think about. And just bear in mind, too, that you never know. Uh, but, you know, one of the one of the women I was hanging out with this w- weekend, she really wanted a sh- short, simple sheath dress for her wedding dress. And it would be very easy for any guest to show up in the exact same dress off mod cloth. You know what I mean? It's like totally possible. And so we just say, choose a different dress, ladies. Just don't go with a white dress on someone else's wedding day. Um, shower, you can probably get away with that. But on the actual wedding day, steer clear of the white dresses. Thank you for the question. Tis the season, and it's good to get a chance to address a classic. Our next question is titled, Please Do Come In. Dear Lizzie and Daniel, I would appreciate your advice about how to make clients feel welcome and comfortable when they come to my office for a meeting. Usually my clients are couples or sometimes two generations, parents and adult children. I greet them in the reception area, offer them something to drink, and then walk them a few steps to my office. Which person should I greet first? By gender? By age? Based on who's closest? We sometimes end up in an awkward dance when we get to the open door of my office. What's the courteous way to invite them in? Stand outside and invite them to go in? Older men tend to say, after you, and wait for me to go in. I am a woman in my 40s, if that helps. Also, any general guidelines for saying goodbye when the meeting is over? Thank you so much for your suggestions. Anonymous. Great question, right? This is a great question. I love this question. (laughs) This is such good business etiquette. It is. It really is. And it's something that we deal with all the time at the Emily Post Institute. Someone shows up and how do we greet them? What is best practice? What actually happens? (laughs) Like quieting down my barking dog. (laughs) Who often participate in the the warm welcome that people get when they come to the Emily Post Institute. This is uh, really important territory. Yeah. You're talking about first meetings. You're talking about honoring relationships that are more established. You're talking about how you share your space, how you play the role of host in a business situation where we're going to defer to a slightly more formal standard. We're going to take a little more care with each other because money is on the line. (laughs) So in that spirit, let's think a little bit about introductions first. With introductions, when you're thinking about order of introductions, how you formalize the process a little bit. when you're Especially in the business world. Particularly in the business world and particularly when you're making introductions for the first time. You want to honor visitors, guests, outsiders. Mm -hmm. After visitors, guests, or outsiders, you really want to be sure that you respect organizational hierarchies. After organizational hierarchies, it's good to have an awareness of age. You want to respect and honor elders and... All other things being equal, and in business we say that business etiquette should be gender neutral, there are some places where business etiquette and social etiquette cross and you want to think about and be aware of the traditional gendered courtesy of ladies first. And this comes up in your question where sometimes you'll have a a man say, oh, no, after you. And you acknowledge you're a woman in your 40s and you think that maybe those gendered courtesies and expectations are starting to come into play as well, even though – Technically, you're playing the host role and trying to do your job of saying no, no after you. And it's a business situation, which we know is gender neutral, but not everyone else knows that. So you get these moments where, like you said, social crosses into business or old school crosses into modern. 
or where you start to have a crossing of, well, who's really the new person (laughs) or the guest here? Who's the real guest in this situation? And you're talking about greeting people that are clients or guests. So you've already kind of established that part of the relationship. You're going to honor them, respect them. You're going to say hi. Most likely, just practically, you're going to greet and say hi to the person that you know well first. So if you've got a couple that's coming into your office and you have a long-term relationship with one of them, you're probably going to acknowledge that person, say hi, maybe shake their hand. But I definitely think you want to very quickly turn your attention to the person who's newest to the situation. They're the one who really requires an introduction. You need to introduce yourself. If particularly the person who knows both of you isn't instantly grabbing that opportunity and making an introduction, you want to introduce yourself. You want to present yourself. You want to identify yourself, say who you are, offer them your hand. A handshake is a great gesture, a universal gesture of peace and friendship. And a good warm handshake communicates so much. And it really is that welcoming gesture that you want to be sure you touch everyone with as soon as possible, particularly that new person. Question, Professor. Please. Do we have um, – what happens when uh, when you don't know either? Let's say these are fresh clients. I'm thinking of, you know, maybe maybe people like uh, a therapist or maybe a, a lawyer, a state planner or something, a financial advisor, and you've never met the family or the, the people who are coming in. So, you know, you're kind of walking in saying, you know, uh, Joneses and and then a group of people stand up. What would you do then? Great question. You're going to present yourself. And I say practicality is the heart of good etiquette. If there's one person who's closer to you or who's really approaching you, who's clearly the leader of the group, the team, the couple, and they're helping you make that decision, I say go for it. If we're talking a thousand percent equal in every way, it's a 50-50 split, you're halfway between the two of them, they're both coming towards you. This is one of those places where I might go with ladies first. I might take that as I've descended down that whole scale, that whole hierarchy of considerations. I might let that guide me towards the end. If I don't want to do that, I could flip a coin, say last time I went ladies first, this time I'm going to go gentlemen first. You could also try if you remember who booked the appointment. You might, you know, try to use that as a way to go. But you just never know when, you know, you got two women coming up to you. You just don't know which of the two actually booked the appointment if you didn't talk to them on the phone or know anything about their visual characteristics. So you just might not know. But as I'm thinking about it, I'm really thinking the person on the left would probably be the person I would start with just because we read left to right. We oftentimes start (laughs) on the left and proceed to the right. So, I mean, that might be your default in that situation also. But I'm going to look for some cue. Who booked the appointment? Who's presenting themselves? Who is the one who's just closer to me, who's approaching me first or is nearer as we come together? Who'd you make eye contact with? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So you're going to navigate that introduction. You're going to be in great shape. Um, I would go with elder over children. I would say hi to parents before I said hi to kids. If I was aware of an organizational hierarchy, I would start with the person that I knew to be senior in the situation. Having got through introductions, I love that you're offering someone something to drink. I think it's also a really nice idea to offer to take someone's coat or to offer them a place to set something down as they enter your space. Very similar to when someone arrives at your home, you would offer to take their coat or help them with anything that they're carrying. I like that you're thinking about your next step as well, how you take them to your office. I think you're doing exactly the right thing by holding the door or indicating to them that they should precede you into the space, sort of making that a a welcoming gesture. Make it an actual gesture. Go ahead and gesture with your arm. Say after you or please go ahead. And it can really be helpful in that moment to also give someone some idea of where they're expected to sit or stand. 
So please take a seat here at the desk or um, please make yourself comfortable, sit anywhere or please the far side of the table is where you're going to have the best view of the screen that I'm going to be presenting on. So your guests are also not just going to be looking for you to indicate where to go, but also where to sit and what to do next. And you want to start playing that role as soon as possible. If I had a client who said, oh, no, no, after you. I don't think I'm going to get into an argument there unless there is a real practical reason why you want them to precede you into the office. <laughs> I I wouldn't turn that moment into a, 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 a discourse about, oh, no, no, after you. Oh, no, no, after you. Oh, no, after you. I really insist. I think you want to keep that moment as smooth, as casual as possible, even though we're talking about being formal. <laughs> and I would say thank you so much and I would precede them into the office. And I'm sure – Anyone in your presence would think you were an excellent host, Dan. That sounds lovely. (laughs) So there you have it, Anonymous, a number of different options based on the different situations that you are presented with on a a daily basis. But I think that one thing resounds very clear. Make the introductions. Continue to do these nice courtesies that you do. More than anything, it matters that you actually say, hello, and my name is, and ask for the introduction, and have a pleasant greeting than it is exactly, you know, who you're introducing to whom first or who you lean forward to shake hands with first or really even who goes into your office first. So we think you've got a real eye for this and that uh, I'm sure your clients and guests feel very welcome in your presence. Well, in our practice in class, we learned that introducing people was just a matter of showing respect. Our next question is another short and sweet classic. It's called The Dinner Party's Done. What time is the timeline for how long you have to stay at a dinner party? I love this question, but I also love how you read the title to it because it made me feel like, so we're a spinoff from Dinner Party Download, and The Dinner Party's Done. I was like, no, no, say it ain't so. I I was thinking about our favorite radio hosts and their show. I know. I was like, that, that dinner party can never be finished. That dinner party needs to be just ongoing for forever. I love this question, too, because it's a classic and it it's short and sweet. I think also for anyone who has suffered through a not-so-fun dinner party, can we not be gracious when we answer all of this question? Can we take a minute and just be real? Not every dinner party is fun. Not everyone is a great cook. And not everyone knows that they're not a great cook. And not everyone knows that they're not entertaining. And you just have so some of those friends or some of those family members who, you know, bless their hearts. They are wonderful, but you kind of just grin and bear it through an evening at their home. And it is our job as guests, as loving, supportive guests to grin and bear it, not to criticize, not to like fake the, the cat sick at home. Oh, gotta go, you know, but instead to, to actually grin and bear it and be supportive. And you can have very passive conversations later about what good entertaining skills and re- good recipes are. But, but in the moment, you grin and bear it because your host has usually done quite a lot to uh, make this evening for you and and to create this um, not-so-fun time for you. You really want to take that minute and think to yourself when you are caught in a dinner party that just isn't fun. Now, I am not talking about offensively not fun. If something's offensively not fun, get yourself out of there. Do what you need to do to respect yourself. I just want to make that really clear. But when we're talking, "Eh, it's just a little dull or the food really needed more seasoning. Like, you know, those parties that you're just kind of waiting for them to end. 
And try to do your best to say, hey, my friend went out and bought groceries and put things together and probably cleaned up his or her house and has been thinking about this, might have been a little nervous about this even. What can I do to help make tonight great? Because let's remind ourselves, guests, let's remind ourselves that we can bring a party when we need to. That doesn't mean totally changing what your host is set up for you, but it does mean that you can actively engage in conversation. You can do things to make this more fun, even if other elements are making you want to leave as soon as you are able. I like the direction you're taking this. I like that you're acknowledging it doesn't always go so well. It doesn't. But that we are all active participants in our own lives and that we have some control. We can make things better with the right mindset, with the right attitude, that it's not about how soon can I escape. Right. And obviously this is... um, Counter to the situation where the dinner party is awesome. Right. Where it's exciting and the music is good and it comes back on after dinner and you just don't want to leave. And I think there are a couple of sort of general limits we can think about. We can think about maybe an hour after the plates are cleared. You want to start looking for cues from the host. Yeah, that's what I would say. And that feels right to me. When we think about the advice that we give in the 19th edition of Emily Post's Etiquette, (laughs) which you all know will be out very soon, I think it's probably appropriate to think from a host perspective that about an hour after dinner, you're, you're probably ready to go. And of course, this depends on when dinner ends, that sort of thing. But I would say that typically you eat dinner, either you get coffee and dessert served at the table or often a host will, you know, invite you into a den or the living room and you'll do... Sometimes that's when fun games and things start. You never know. But usually about an hour into that after dinner hour, you're you're good to say, oh, well, it's probably time that we start heading out. I also tend to think that, that 10 o'clock is like a magic number. Like, I feel like 10... Dan's giving me the nod like, yeah, out the door by 10. I feel like 10 p.m., if you've got a dinner party that started at 7, you've probably had like... A little bit of time before dinner and then you maybe have like an hour and a half at dinner and you start to push the 10 o'clock and it's like 10 o'clock's late enough that you as the host really can't force and guilt trip your guests to stay. And I think it's also early enough to still get home and have a decent night's sleep and everything. I don't know. I'm, I'm liking this magic 10. Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Not crazy. Okay. And your mother has some great tips for hosts really? for getting people out the door. Well, that is true. And yes. they work really well, I think, for guests to start to pay attention to these little cues from hosts as well. When do the lights come on? When does the music <laughs> shut off? When has the food service and the drink service ended? In that spirit, too, I was also thinking that not all dinner parties are created equal. Sometimes those games have happened before dinner. Yep. And really, dessert is the finish line. And when dessert is served and cleared, the host is already starting to give these cues. You're not invited back into the living room and the den for drinks. It's... It's approaching that 9.30, wait a minute, there's not going to be a transition that's still going to have us out of here by 10 window. And it's maybe appropriate to leave sooner to the end of dinner. So definitely keeping an eye on the host and having some awareness of the course of the evening and what's been going on is important here. But the the idea that you're not running out the door, that you're not waiting (laughs) for that last bite of food to be swallowed and that last sip of wine or water to go down your throat before you bang your glass on the table and ask for your coat, I think it is a really important baseline to have and that 
you want to give your host some breathing room after the meal is finished in case there is something that's that's planned that's coming next. In other words, you, the guest, shouldn't say, may we help you clean up, <laughs> you know, and instead let your host be the one to, to indicate that they are going to start cleaning up something like that. Or, oh, is it time to go already? No, no, no. Wait for your host to say, well, it's probably about time for me to think about packing things in or this has been so lovely. Thank you all for coming. That's a big line. That's the first test the waters host line. Thank you all so much for coming this evening. It has been so wonderful to get to see you and to laugh with you. And, oh, I have missed this so much. That's such a great indicator that your host is not going to invite you back, as Dan said, not going to to continue the evening. There isn't more planned. There's not a secret cake that's about to come out or something like that. And if you have a babysitter that you need to pick up at 930, the time to mention that is when you arrive or when you're responding to the invitation so that you set any any hard limits or parameters that you really need to honor early on so that it doesn't come as a surprise when they are about to bring out the icebox cake or <laughs> the, the, the final flourish that they really had thought of as part of the, the, the evening's evening. festivities. I imagine you do that frequently when you have an early morning flight for a seminar somewhere the next day that you will often probably say, hey, just to let you know, you know, I'm going to have to duck out around 9 p.m. in order to get myself packed and in bed in time for that flight tomorrow morning or something like that. That would be such an easy thing for a host to understand understand and accommodate, and they might even slice you a piece of that desired and favored and coveted icebox cake and send it home with you. A final thought that I want to conclude this question with is that the really important thing is that you say goodbye on your way out, that you thank the host generously, warmly, graciously, however you're making your exit, whenever you're making your exit, that you treat it as an in-person thank you note. Thank them. Mention something specific about the evening. Make a connection. If there is a future action, you can indicate it. I can't wait to see you again whenever that might happen or to do this again or to reciprocate this invitation or whatever it is, thank them a second time and really smile and mean it. And they will remember that as much as they remember exactly what the time was when you did take your leave. Anonymous, we hope that helps and that it gives you some avenues of escape for maybe not the best dinner party, but also some other ways of thinking about when you're at a dinner party that maybe isn't as exciting as others, how you can participate to help make it a little bit better, and also how you can pick up on your host's cues that they're ready for the dinner party to be over. Good manners make people happy, and it is good to have friends like to come to our home. Thank you so much for your questions. Please send us updates and comments to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or you can leave us a message. We love to hear your voice at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or you can hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so that we know you want your question on the show. Each week we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Gerald wrote to us the other week with some thoughts on thank you notes in Brazil. Hello, Lizzie, Dan, and other amazing people who make this podcast possible. Greetings from Brazil. I'm not really sure if this is a feedback or a question, but since you mentioned that etiquette from other countries is something you find interesting, let me share a quick bit I've noticed. I always find it amusing how much you talk about thank you notes and the nuances involved are intriguing to me. So I did some research, quick Google search, talked to a few etiquette nerds I know and my personal experience (laughs) on thank you notes. 
as was my impression. Thank you notes are not common at all here in Brazil. Most thank yous are handled right on the spot when receiving a gift. If that's not possible, a call or even a text message normally will do. Never have I noticed a written thank you note arriving in my mailbox or even someone mentioning something like this. I'm not really sure what the rules are, but as far as I've seen, people are satisfied with a thank you in person or a call or a text mentioning it. Ever since I started listening to your podcast, it always struck me as odd that I've spent almost 30 years and never had this topic been mentioned. My mom is into etiquette, and she mentioned it never occurred to her to send thank you notes by mail. What I learned from all this? The next time a thank you note is due, I'll send it. By mail. I'll report back to you guys on this experience. Thank you for the amazing podcast. It is a delight listening to you both every week. Gerald. I love it. First of all, I'm very relieved to hear a listener writing in telling us that the thank you note info is interesting because I feel like I'm like it's it's such a topic for us and it's so covered all the time. I worry that we overdo it and I do find it fascinating how varied the responses are and how from culture to culture it can be really different. So I love the fact that we have uh, Gerald writing in from Brazil and telling us his experience, even coming from a family that had a lot of focus on etiquette, a mom who was really into this. Um, I think that it's it's very cool to hear that that's, that's not the way thank yous are done in Brazil and that Gerald would like to try doing thank yous this way just to see what happens. Please, Gerald, send us that next update because I'm dying. To find. I'm like, I want to send him a gift just to see what happens, but then the thank you note would come back to us and it wouldn't work. So it's like, need to like contact someone in Gerald's world and be like, okay, send him this gift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see what he does. <laughs> to be continued. Our next piece of feedback comes from Jimmy, and Jimmy got back to us after we answered his question on coughing storms that were taking place at work. Hey, Lizzie and Dan, I was super thrilled when I heard this question pop up on air. Thank you for giving such a thorough response. It tied in nicely with the accounting later in the episode. It was a tricky situation. I work at a public accounting firm, and our employer is very flexible about working from home, providing a generous amount of PTO, that's uh, personal time off, headphones while working, and basically everything else that you suggested. A lot of the employees just don't feel like they can take time off during the busy season. Great personality trait for being an accountant, slightly less great for staying 100% healthy. Add to that the age range, 20s to 60s, of the people and their thoughts on the meaning of a good work ethic. Side note, the folks that have been in our industry longer come up under the mindset that no vacation is allowed between January 1st and April 15th for any reason whatsoever. I believe their motto is that it's always 72 and sunny. Super old school, and I'm glad we're moving away from that policy. My team understands they can work from home, and they do, but I'm not allowed to, nor do I want to manage the other teams. So that was one of our suggestions was, is this, you know, just in your team or is it other people kind of, where's your standing in it? And so Jimmy's letting us know that he didn't have standing with the other teams. One of the very compassionate parents on my team spoke to me about all the sick folks surrounding us, and I told her I had plenty of Dayquil and cough drops, so she took it upon herself to be a parent to the other younger employees. The younger employees were super grateful to her. As for our elders, we decided it was best to let them continue about their business. Another side note, for self-medication, I was taking Dayquil, liberally using cough drops, and then made 
lemon honey tea all day long. I get weird looks for that last one, but less weird than when I tell people I buy ginger roots and make ginger honey tea at night. This has worked well to keep my coughing at bay. But when I did feel a looming coughing spell, I would walk over to the emergency stairwell that no one uses and is outside the office space to get past the coughs. I think that's a great solution. Take yourself out of the environment where people are trying to work if you feel that coughing spell coming on. Next year, I'll take you up on your advice and speak with HR. They'll probably be more than happy to send out a friendly reminder before we dust off the biohazard warning signs. One of our coworkers actually went to the doctor and found out that they had had the flu, so I'm guessing that is what got passed around this year. One person on my team is a bit older and has a weaker immune system, so there was liberal use of Lysol spray whenever the sick people left their cubes. It was hilarious, mostly from how diligent and fast this teammate would pop up and spray. This individual and I sat down and figured out this whole thing started mid-January and didn't calm down until last week. This was written a few weeks ago, so we're saying probably sometime in March. Accountants and tax season, what can you do? Again, thank you for the kind advice and thank you for producing the podcast. I love the positive vibes that I feel from both of you. I'm looking forward to many more great episodes, Jimmy. That, I mean, that just sound, that was a messy, messy office cough situation going on. And I think that, that it sounds like this accounting firm did the best that they could. Which is all you can do. This is a really tough situation. We had a, a hard time finding a really good answer for this question because it is such a tricky situation. There are so many sides to this. And Jimmy, you did a really good job fleshing it out. I love the advice about the honey tea, tea? the I honey know. lemon tea. I'm sitting there just giving double thumbs up. Thank you for passing that one along because sometimes it's little things like that that really do make a big difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you, Jimmy, for sending in your feedback. And thank you to the rest of us for sending your thoughts and updates. And please keep them coming. You can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment, where we dive a little bit deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's Postscript is inspired by the emergence of spring and the fact that I was giving away books when I was doing my last seminar. And the book that I was giving away was Peter Post's passion project called The Unwritten Rules of Golf. And it is a fabulous little book that I found myself flipping through because I was carrying it around with me. And I was inspired by the green cover and the, the, the possibility of golf reemerging in my life. Although, confessions, I am the rank amateur on the team here at the mic today. <laughs> Definitely got my, my letter in high school, but play so infrequently now. But across from me is someone with a membership at the local club. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and who comes from a family that is passionate about golfing, where it is, uh, I wouldn't want to call it just a, a rite of passage, but it's a... a or a family pastime, because that's not quite right Dan's either. like searching for all these words, and I'm laughing at the word passionate. I think obsession might be better, or um, compulsive obsession. My father, is in his semi-retirement stage, is pretty much at the point where it's like, if he's not playing golf, it's a bad day. Like, it's really tough. My mom was like, I didn't want to retire just to retire on a golf course. Like, that's not what I wanted. Travel, adventure, life beyond, beyond the stage. Well, and I'll go back in time. One of my first jobs was helping our grandfather maintain his little chip and putt practice course that was up behind the the backyard. (laughs) I I remember a prohibition against golf gifts 
that happened at one point during our childhood. When because was this? <laughs> everybody was giving everybody golf stuff all the time. That was the like the only thing that was being unwrapped at the holidays, and it just it had to it had to end somewhere. So in that vein, golf is definitely a post family passion, and this was a passion project of Peter's. And as I'm thumbing through this book, I'm reminded of what a remarkable microcosm this game is for larger concepts about etiquette, and I, I, what really shined through for me in this book was both his enjoyment for the game, but also the way that he's able to apply a lot of the broad etiquette concepts that we talk about to this area of his life that he enjoys so much, which he really sees as being about relationships. It's a a unique sport in that it really is a, a, a place where we're not just competing, but we're also cooperating or we're spending time together in a meaningful way. Oh, yeah. And that is a a unique and special part of the game. Well, and golf etiquette is such a special part of the game. I am reminded of rounds that I have played where true friendships are forged, where you can come out of a bad day at work and turn it into your most triumphant day ever just because of the camaraderie or the the awesome feelings that you get on the golf course, that can go the other way too. I recently dined with a golfing friend of mine who we were we were talking about the upcoming season and she confessed to me that she would rather not play with a couple of people because she didn't love the way they treated her. She's a new golfer. She's slower. She, you know, needs to take her time in order to learn right. And she was, you know, not having a fun time because of the way others didn't use their golf etiquette on the golf course. So it can go I Either way, and I am so excited. This I'm kind of going in blind to this postscript today because Dan sprung this on me on the phone last night, and I said, that's such a good idea. Like, run with it, and I will color commentary the whole thing. So I'm going to let my cousin deliver the excellent golf advice, and I will, I will tell stories that will bore you all to death. <laughs> I'm sure not. <laughs> what I did was I bulleted out some of the major... Uh, sort of tips that emerged just even looking at the chapter titles in Peter's book. Totally. And what I noticed was that they aligned almost immediately and directly with our three core principles of good etiquette. Imagine that. Consideration, respect, and honesty. (laughs) So uh, I, I wanted to start off with the honesty, with the telling the truth component that is so important to a good game of golf. And places where I saw his advice really centering around being honest that were areas about keeping score. Of course. That this is such a special and unique game and that you keep your own scorecard. Yeah. And that it's up to you to call penalties on yourself, mm-hmm. to acknowledge gimmies, that that putt that, oh, I, I would have made that. The mulligans, the do-overs that you take on the tees, the... How about hand and foot wedges? Those don't actually occur in your bag, but my goodness, they get used a lot. I hadn't heard of the hand or foot wedge. What a what a special uh, what a special addition stick. to the bag. <laughs> yeah. That that unfavorable lie that yeah. somehow got corrected. The magic gophers. Little tough of ground on the fairway that the ball found its way onto that practically looks like a tee. Um, <laughs> so. Telling the truth, it's an important and fundamental part of your golf game. But I want to go beyond just the scorekeeping and talk about truth-telling to yourself about your game, your ability, your skill, um, what your handicap is, and when you're talking to others about um, how close it was to being a hole-in-one or an eagle or to making par on that most difficult hole. 
when I'm teaching my etiquette seminars and I talk about the white lie being pernicious and how it's not always designed to deceive, sometimes that white lie creeps into our lives in the form of exaggeration. It's that fish that gets a little bigger each time you tell the story. Well, my other example when I'm teaching is it's that that hole in one that you were a little closer to every time you tell the story. <laughs> and I, I think it's a, a place to really remind ourselves and hold ourselves accountable to the truth because a good story can get better with every telling. And it's funny how that truth can also be something that that can be reassuring. When I'm having a bad day on the golf course, when my game just isn't up to par, <laughs> um, I, I definitely remind myself of the truth of it, that today's just maybe not my day. And I'm amazed at how much that can turn my attitude around from every shot needing to be great and getting me more frustrated the less great those shots are, to being, oh, that's right. This is so much about the enjoyment of the course and the enjoyment of a game that's challenging. And today the challenge is really present. It's amazing how much just that honesty of today's not my great day out here lets go of any kind of preciousness about it needing to be a great day. And I can enjoy my time with my friends even when my game isn't great. The best person not to deceive is yourself. Yes. So that's the truth. Let's talk a little bit about respect. And the place where I saw the concept of respect really emerging was about respect for the course itself. Yes. Respect for the course and the game. So honoring the rules of the game, but also just respecting the physical course. And there's a lot of tips in the book about replacing divots, repairing ball marks when your ball lands on the green, raking traps after you use them, about staying off parts of the course that are prohibited when there's new grass planted or when you're in a cart and you're supposed to keep that cart on a trail or a certain cart approved Path, area, yeah. but your ball's just over there and it'd be so much quicker if you could just zip over there and back. Really respecting the course, taking care of that course that is important for you and for others. Another place that respect comes up is respect for the course environment. And one big thing that comes up in this book is about dressing well. And that you want to honor dress codes. But even if there isn't a particular dress code that you're being forced to honor, thinking about keeping your standards just a little bit higher, I think, is really important for creating an environment where everyone is comfortable. So dressing well, dressing appropriately, being sure you know what the dress codes are, honoring them, but then also honoring maybe an internal dress code that you would apply to yourself when you're out playing a game where tradition is important. And this comes up in the book, and I just have to mention it also, that uh, relieving yourself on the course, and it would seem to just go I'm so without, sorry you have to bring this up even. without mention, and I really shouldn't even have to mention it, but it does come up in the book, and it is so offensive to so many people. I really want to encourage people to hold themselves super accountable to, to that particular rule and just don't do it. And also, when you are so upset at people walking their dogs who then relieve themselves on your lawn and create bald spots on your lawn because of it. Don't then go do the same thing on a course that basically is a giant lawn that you, you pay a lot of money to keep manicured nicely. Um, it is it is definitely one of those things that it's so easy to think, oh, I can just go right here. No one's going to see. Nobody's around. And you really can be damaging the course. And you can be seen by people who live around the course. So please, please, please do not relieve yourself on the golf course. So respect also starts to translate to respect for others. But I also see this starting to transition into our 
our first principle of good etiquette consideration, having awareness for others. And we often say that safety trumps etiquette. So first of all, I would like to say play safe. You don't hit into other people and really watch your swing. You're swinging around a golf club. They call it a club. And guess what? You can do some real damage with that club as well as with the ball. You also want to play nice. Pace yourself. If you remember that, you're not as likely to be pushing up and taking those risky shots that approach those people playing in front of you. Keep quiet. Don't disturb others. Keep your temper. Try not to vent your frustration in ways that impact you or those around you negatively. There's a great image in the book and a story told of the golfer who, you know, he gets so mad he throws his club and it gets stuck in the tree. So then he throws his shoe up and that gets stuck and then everything comes up. But before you know it, like, here he is, like, in such a big mess just because he lost his temper. I I like the story of the father telling his son, you're not good enough to break your clubs. (laughs) Really, I mean, it's a game. Keep your temper. Keep your cool. Um, Don't distract others when they're playing. Don't stand in front of other people. Don't stand directly behind them when they're swinging. Stay out of their lines of sight and don't move as well as don't talk. Don't be a distraction to other people when they're trying to focus on what they're doing. I have a longtime great girlfriend golf player that that we are such buds. And it became this running joke in our group because every time she went to address her ball, you know, everyone goes quiet. And then there would just be this thought that would pop into my head and having no filter, it would come right out and inevitably it would make Barb laughed so hard and she would have to and it was just this irony that no matter what the funniest thing would get said right as she was about to address them so now she hesitates and is like does anybody have anything 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 to say at all but it's a running joke at this point but how distracting for her every time she steps up like so not good I'm going to be working on that this season the final thing I really want to mention is be nice. Be nice to yourself. Be nice to the people around you. Don't gloat. Don't pout. Don't brag. Don't overcoach. Be helpful when you can. Pay bets on time. Be patient. <laughs> Apologize for your mistakes. But most of all, stay positive. Pay yes. compliments. Compliment the people around you. Compliment yourself. Have a sense of humor about a game that we're all meant to enjoy. And I guarantee you and the people you play with will enjoy it all the more. Absolutely. And this is reminding me, Daniel Post-Senning, would you like to come out to the course with me so that we can finally, after three years, have our round of golf together? I would love to. Awesome. Well, we like to end our show on a high note, and we won't just leave you with the promise of Dan and I playing golf together. We will bring you something to make you feel good about your day. Um, We want to highlight the etiquette that you are seeing and experiencing out in the world, and it can come in so many forms. And today's salute comes from Maggie, who has a salute to the Phoenix Airport staff. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I'm a longtime listener of the show and have appreciated all of your advice and application of the consideration, respect, and honesty framework. I've also enjoyed going through special life events like engagements and expecting a child alongside Dan. Thank you for all of your work to prepare and share these episodes. I'd like to give an etiquette salute to the information services staff at the Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport. My husband and I were at the airport after a long weekend looking for a mailbox to send some postcards to family. When I asked a staff member at the information services desk, he verified the mailbox location with another staff member and gave us detailed directions. Just as my husband started off down the escalator in the direction of the mailbox, the man went to follow my husband and make sure that he made it okay. He was 
genuinely pleasant and helpful, and the extra gesture of accompanying my husband made me feel like he really cared. I usually find airports to be stressful places, so I'm grateful to this man for his service and kindness. Thank you both again for your work, too. Best, Maggie. As we were talking about travel, I'm sure you could absolutely agree that anytime you have helpful airport staff, it does make the whole experience less stressful and much more enjoyable. It certainly does. There's a lot to think and talk about on the subject of manners, and many good reasons to ask, are manners important? Thank you for listening, and thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us your next question, comment, or salute to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And I'm at Lizzie A. Post. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. You can help us out. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine, and our awesome etiquette intern is Michaela Varanoff.